Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're all doing well today. I hope you're doing like a guy that I met in Anchorage, Alaska. He was standing outside a bar. I was walking across the street and I looked over at him and he just had a big smile on his face. And as I crossed the street, I kept noticing, he just kept looking at me, just watching me walk. I kind of looked over at him and I said, how are you doing today? You know, I just kind of curious why this guy was watching me. He said, I'm too blessed to be depressed. And he said, I'm too anointed to be disappointed. And I said, I'll bet you're too sanctified to be terrified. I said, you must know the man. He said, I know the man. Well, he was standing outside the bar to catch guys coming out and uh, give them the gospel. And uh, Fassel was with me while we were up there for a conference. And uh, we had a great reunion of brothers who had never met before. And uh, we always carry that with us. I'm too blessed to be depressed. I hope that that's you this morning. Nick, I want to just thank you for the, the wonderful family that you have here, the wonderful church that always receives us with such love and appreciation. And uh, we know that many of you pray for us. And as we look at the video, uh, we see some of the places that we've been able to go this year and some of the faces that we have uh, looked on and uh, the smiles. And we don't often show you the tears, but there are often many, many tears in the places that we go because there is a lot of suffering in the world today. I hope that you'll be praying this morning for the nation of Israel. Uh, there is a lot of suffering uh, that's going on right now. And, the, you know, it's a biblical command, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And, of course, that pre peace is only going to come when the Prince of Peace is residing there. And when they welcome him back, Jesus said, you will not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we pray that that day will come very soon. And of course, that means uh, that our time of entering into the presence of the Lord is drawing near moment by moment. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the little book of Jude. We're going to wrap the book of Jude up this morning. Uh, Jude has been called the least studied book in the New Testament, and I think that's probably right. Uh, many believers know only the beatitude or the doxology, if you will, at the end of the book. We'll be looking at that in our next session. Uh, I might uh, encourage you, if you don't have pressing business, to stay around because that doxology uh, opens up a great deal of truth for us. Before we get into the word, however, I want to just back up Nick's prayer for us and for our time together and just ask that God will speak to you. Uh, you're here this morning, hopefully, to hear from the Lord and not to hear from me. And my prayer is always that God will hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ, and that you'll see him and that you'll hear him and that he'll speak to you through his word. So if you would join me at the throne of grace, let's ask his blessing one more time. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we come as your children. We come to the table hungry. We're asking that God the Holy Spirit will minister to us as we quietly wait on that ministry. 
Father, there are people here this morning who are carrying heavy burdens. They may have a smile on their face, but there may be an ache in their heart. There are people who may have recently lost loved ones and are suffering with that grief. There may be families that are being torn apart by the divisive activities that are going on in our nation today. Father, we look around our country and it's as if the demons have been unleashed as sin and evil and deception runs rampant through our country. But my prayer is that as we assemble ourselves here, may God the Holy Spirit in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ take up the sword of the Spirit and perform spiritual surgery on our souls. And may those who weep find that Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. May those who suffer realize that oftentimes it's through suffering that we find healing. And Father, those who are lonely, may they find an embrace, not only of your spirit, but of your people. Meet our needs as we open your word. Above all, turn our eyes to the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us, who sought us, who died for us, and who is coming again. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. The little book of Jude, just to give background to those who haven't been with us, is built around one theme. And that theme we find in verse 3, and it is an exhortation that each and every one of us ought to be contending earnestly for the faith. The word that Jude uses there is found nowhere else in Scripture in that particular form. As I mentioned, it comes from the word agonizo. The verb agonizo means, of course, to agonize. Uh, it was an athletic term. It spoke of the intensity of the wrestler or the intensity of the runner. Uh, toward the end of their race, toward the end of their uh, wrestling match. Uh, I tried to explain that wrestling in the ancient world was not, is not like wrestling today. Uh, they didn't have rules like no eye gouging, no biting of the nose, uh, no kneeing in the groin. All of those things were legal in ancient wrestling. As a matter of fact, in some of the competitions, they actually had boxing and wrestling mixed together. Uh, and the men would, uh, I always think of this when I see guys come out of a boxing match and they're acting like they're the greatest thing in the world. Uh, in the ancient world, they wore gloves of seven layers of bullhide with steel and metal knobs and spikes on the end of the gloves. And of course, they had the fingers open much like our MMA practitioners do today, and so they could both grapple and they could punch. But as they came to the most intense part of that conflict or that competition, or uh, as the word was also used of a soldier, when the fighting came to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat, uh, they called it agonizo. Ag agonize is really the meaning of the word, and Jude is calling on you and I to enter into the conflict. He's calling on each and every one of us. This is not addressed to pastors, to missionaries, to evangelists, not to those that we consider to be leaders. Jude addresses himself to the common believer. As a matter of fact, he says that he is writing to all of those who share in our common salvation. 
He doesn't mean common in the sense of uh, average or uh, just blasé or normal. He means common in the sense that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you share the same thing that every other believer has. It may have never uh, come to your attention or uh, maybe you've never thought of this, but you have everything the Apostle Paul had. He had one thing that you and I don't have, and that's the gift of apostleship. You should thank God for that because most of them died pretty brutal deaths. But other than that, the resources that he had, you and I have. And I'm going to share some of those with us this morning. So we're called to contend for the faith. It's very interesting that after verse 3, instead of telling us, we would likely ask the question, okay, Jude, what do you want us to do? How do we contend for the faith? Well, he doesn't tell us. He starts telling us about our enemy. And he goes into a long section all the way from verse 4 through verse 16 telling us about the false teachers who have crept into the church, those who are perverting the doctrine of God's grace, those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And he warns us of these false teachers because he tells us they can be so slick, they can be so smooth, they can be so convincing, and they look like the genuine article, but what's going on within their heart and within their soul is totally depraved and totally evil. And so he warns us to be alert. And of course, you and I live in a time where we have many, many false teachers that are entering into the church. This is not a recent warning as far as Jude is concerned. As I mentioned, by the time Jude wrote the book, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, had all been martyred. There was a great vacuum of spiritual leadership in the church. And therefore, Jude, I sense in his little book, almost reluctantly steps in to fill the gap. He realizes that it's now his time to contend for the faith. And as we pointed out, Jude calls himself simply by his name Jude, which is actually Judas. Uh, I think the reason we call the book the book of Jude is to distinguish him from the other Judas that we don't want to identify him with, Judas Iscariot. But he gives us his name, Judas. He tells us that he is a slave, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And by these three things, identifies himself. I might point out before we go any further that Jude is a book of threes. If you pick up a copy of the notes in the appendices of the notes, the first one that I have, there are 15 sets of three in this little book. Uh, we call them triads or trinities, and there are 15 sets of them within the book. But after Jude deals with those that are opposed to the truth, those who are perverting and distorting the truth of God and the grace of God, he finally comes now toward the end of the book. He's finally going to tell us how we contend for the faith. And I want to just read it for you. I'm going to read verse 17 through verse 23, and then we're going to come back. And in verse 17, he addresses you and I. This is written to you, and I hope that you take it as a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ, as an exhortation from our Savior to each and every one of us. He says, but you, beloved, and the little word but indicates we're now making a transition. We're, we're looking now at a contrast. This is how they are. This is what they think. This is what they say. 
This is what they do. But you, next word, beloved. Uh, we mentioned earlier in verse 1 as he addresses these people. They are people who have been called to faith in Christ, sanctified and beloved by God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he says, remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think he speaks this way, as I said, because some of them are no longer present. Remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, again the contrast, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. A very interesting command here. How in the world do we do that? Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. On some have compassion, making a difference or a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. We'll get to verse 24 and 25, which is all about God and all about His grace and mercy and power and love. But I want you to just notice, those of you that have notes, you'll notice there that there are seven things that Jude tells us we must do if we're going to contend earnestly for the faith. Number one, we need to remember the Word of God. You know, it's amazing how quickly we get spiritual amnesia. How many times you may go to a church, go to a Bible class, and you hear something and you say, you know, I've heard that before, but I forgot it. I haven't thought about that for a long time. Remember the Word of God, and we're going to see the meaning behind this as we build. The second thing he tells us, build yourself up in the faith. If I were to come to you this morning and ask you, how do you build yourself up in the faith? How would you answer me? What would you say? How well do we know how to build? Um, if I ask a carpenter, how do I build a house? He would very systematically tell me how to begin, how to continue, how to follow through, and how to finish. Do we understand how to build ourselves up in the faith? Pray in the power of the Spirit. Do we know how to pray in the power of the Spirit? When we utter our prayers, are we just mouthing words? Are, are the words just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back? Or are we actually praying in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because you know it makes all the difference in the world. If I'm not praying in the power of the Spirit, my prayers are having no effect at all. If I'm praying in the power of the Spirit, mighty things are going to happen. Maybe if you find that your prayers are not being answered, this will help to open a door for you. Number four, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And this one is so important. And we're going to see how we can actually do that. Number five, keep looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of recent events, I hope that your eyes are on the horizon of this world and that you're eagerly anticipating that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. 
And we believe he's coming back soon. And I hope that you're eagerly expecting that because the tragedy, my friends, of this day is that too many believers are so immersed and enmeshed in the world that they're not looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, they consider that his coming would be an intrusion on their plans. I want to suggest to you this morning that if the Lord's coming would be an intrusion on your plans, you have some serious spiritual issues that you need to deal with. And now is the time to deal with those issues. Keep looking for the coming of the Lord. Six, he says, have compassion on believers who are doubting. You know, we're living in a time of doubt. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, many pastors sow doubt in the minds of their people. Uh, it's, uh, I mentioned last night as I was talking to a group that I recently heard a pastor say, if you're not creating doubt in the minds of your people, whether they're saved or not, you're not doing your job. Can you imagine that? With the assurance, with the confidence, and uh, the promises that we have in the Word of God, the conviction that we are sp supposed to carry based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, why in the world would I want to be a preacher of insecurity? Why would I want to be a preacher of doubt? I want to be a preacher of security and conviction and assurance. And every time we see the word hope in Scripture, we need to understand that hope is not used in Scripture the way we use the word. We say, I hope tomorrow is a fine day. I hope that I'll have a good week. We, we hope, and it's kind of an uh, aimless idea that maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. No, that's not how the Scripture uses the word hope. The word hope means absolute assurance. Our hope in Christ is secure and we're assured and convicted of the truth of it. So have compassion on doubting believers, and then finally, save with fear those unbelievers who can be snatched from the fire. You know, we're surrounded by lost people. We live in a lost world. We live in a world that is under condemnation. And the reason for this is because all of sin and come short of the glory of God. It's because by one man sin entered into the world and death came with sin and so death spread to all men. And as we're told in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death and all men born into this world. I look at little infants as I was just patting the head of a little child out there this morning and how beautiful they are and what a, what a wonderful gift of God. But we have to understand that child has been born into this world spiritually dead and separated from God. And that child needs to come to a point, as we all must come to, where we recognize our great need, and that need is for life. That need is to be made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we save with fear those who can still be snatched from the fire, and some are willing and some are not. Let's just begin with... Verse 17, when he says, you, beloved, remember. The word remember is an imperative. It's a command. Jude is commanding you to remember the word of God. Not just Jude, but of course, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is a command that comes down to us from God. But there's something very interesting about this command. It's in the passive voice. If we translated it the way it's actually written, it would be, be reminded be reminded. I want to encourage you this morning to be reminded of the Word of God. 
You say, how can I be reminded of the Word of God? Well, you're here this morning, and that's a first step. You know, attendance at a local church is not an option for a dedicated believer. One of the tragedies that I would suggest to you this morning is that there are more Christians outside churches in this country today than there are inside the walls of the church. And a lot of that is because of the failure of the churches, because we oftentimes across this land and in churches have failed to teach the Word of God, to go through the Scripture, to expound the Scripture, to be expositors of the Word of God, to explain to people what this book means. That's what the calling of a pastor is all about. It's the call to be a shepherd. It's a call to watch over the flock. It's a call to lead them to the green pastures, to take them by the still waters, to be the representative of Jesus Christ to those people. And I'll tell you, it's a high and a holy calling, and anyone who enters it without fear and trembling simply doesn't understand what it entails, because none of us are worthy of that calling. But the one thing that we're called to do above all others is to preach the word in season, out of season, to present the word of God to the hungry and the needy and the beaten and the battered souls of those who come before us. So when he says here, be reminded of the word of God, he's essentially saying, if you're going to be reminded, you need to go where you can be reminded. You need to make yourself available to that remembrance of the Scripture week by week and day by day. Be reminded of the Word of God. Attendance at the local church, of course, is exhorted in Scripture. I give you uh, in the notes passages like 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 14, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, and so on. Remember the Word of the Lord. And how do we remember and what do we remember? He says, remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we remember that? Because they were not just spoken, they have been written down. Thank God for the written word. Thank God for the faithfulness of the apostles. Where would we be without their faithfulness? What would we know had they not written down for us that which was revealed to them? Let your soul be reminded. Could I suggest to you in your home that you put scriptures on the wall? You know, in old Israel, under the old covenant, they were to take the Ten Commandments and they were to place them on the doorposts of their house. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the little vial that sits. is like a little cylinder that sits on the door, and in it is a little scroll, and it has the Ten Commandments. Of course, you can't read it. The object behind the command of Moses was put them where they can be read. If you want to be reminded of the Word of God, I would suggest that you put Scripture references, Scripture verses all over your house. Put them in your car. Put them where they're obvious. Put them where you can see them so that you will be reminded. And then I encourage you to remind one another. Husbands, remind your wives of the Word of God. And not just the verse, wives, be in submission to your husband, right? We, we love to remind them of that one. And of course, she can turn around and say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. 
I always love that passage in Ephesians 5 when I use it in a marriage ceremony because he starts out and he talks about the wife being submissive and I see girls possibly sitting out there at the wedding and they're rolling their eyes like, you know, an old-fashioned idea. Who in the world am I going to submit to? I'm not submitting to any man. Then I get to the part of the man and I say to the man, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you know what that means? That means you have to sacrifice your life. And then I say to the ladies, all God asks you to do is submit. He's asking this man to lay down his life for you. Makes a big difference. Be reminded of God's word. And why should we be reminded? We should be reminded because we have been told before that there would be mockers that would come. Have we ever entered into a time of mockery like we're in today? The Bible is a joke in our world today. The very fact that you would be here in a church this morning is a laughing matter to the people of this world. The greatest source of humor to many people is making fun of the Christian faith, making fun of the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, making fun of the idea, oh, Jesus is coming again. And I've read some people say that Jesus is the imaginary friend of some grown-ups. It's a joke. And mockery is everywhere. And of course, Peter told us, and if you would, just hold your place here. Turn with me back to Second Peter, because I think this is probably what Jude is referring to in Second Peter chapter 3. Let's just start in verse 3, Second uh, Peter 3, 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. Understand this, my friend, there's a reason why people make fun of the Word of God and the claims of Christ, and that's because it infringes on their desire to be lawless and live life any way they want. And they may do it for a while, but there are penalties and there are consequences, and they always catch up with you walking according to their own lust. And what are they saying? Where is the promise of His coming? Have you heard this today? Oh, Jesus said He was coming back. They've been saying this forever. thousand years ago, they thought He was coming back. 500 years ago, they thought He was coming back. 100 years ago, where is the promise of His coming? Well, 2,000 years ago, all they're doing is fulfilling Scripture and prophecy from the mouth of Peter in this very passage. They say since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But they're forgetting something. Things haven't continued as they were from the beginning of creation. There was something that happened at one time, and it was called a flood. And so important was the flood and the impact of it that the Lord Jesus told his disciples in one of his last messages to them, as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. You know what they did in the days of Noah? Here's Noah and his family up on a hill, building a big boat. Have any of you been to the ark exhibit? I haven't had the privilege of going to that yet. One of these days, you know, with uh, 13 conferences and camps and uh, four overseas missions and trying to write notes on the New Testament, it's like I have a lot of time to go visit the ark. But one of these days, maybe next year, I told the group yesterday, next year I'm slowing down a little bit because next year is Nana, my 50th anniversary. I know when you look at her, you wouldn't believe it. 
and especially living with me for 50 years, you'd think she'd be a nervous wreck, but we're going to slow down. But when, uh, when Noah and his family were building that ark, can you imagine the mockery? Can you imagine the laughter? Why? There had never been rain. The earth was watered by a mist. Water falling from heaven? You've got to be kidding us. Look, the science is settled. Things like that don't happen. And then all of a sudden, Noah and his family, and you know, you see the creatures going in. I like one of the things that someone challenged with recently said, if you want to get ready for the time we're living in, you better start acting like the third monkey on the ramp going into the ark. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. So they go into the ark, and suddenly you see the door shut. Noah didn't shut the door. God closed the door and sealed him in. Sealed him in. That's going to come back later. And then all of a sudden, raindrops. And all of a sudden, it doesn't look so crazy. And all of a sudden, the mockery meets its ultimate condemnation. That's going to happen again. Well, let me go on here, and Peter will never get through this. Verse 5, for this they willfully forget. Notice this is a voluntary erasure of the memory. <clears throat> they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, <clears throat> by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They've wiped this out of their mind. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, do not forget. What did you just tell us? Remember, be reminded. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but he is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, <clears throat> excuse me, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know why Christ hasn't come back? He's waiting on your friends and your relatives to come to Christ. He's waiting on your children to turn to Christ. He's waiting on the neighbor across the street, the person down the road, the fellow student, the fellow worker, the person that you've witnessed to who laughs, who mocks, who scoffs. Maybe they don't openly do that. They just kind of look at you, uh, you know, as if you're a, a pitiful subject and, and kind of shake their head like, oh, this poor person, they believe all these myths and things. God's waiting patiently, long-suffering, when Christ came into the world, my friend, he came into the world motivated by the love of God. He came into the world to seek and save that which is lost. He didn't come into the world to be saved. He didn't come as a king with pomp and circumstances. He came as a humble shepherd. He was born in obscurity. He grew up in hardship. He lived his life in a completely sacrificial mental attitude. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, even though he eternally existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to cling to. He voluntarily stripped off the robe of his glory. He laid it aside. He rose from his throne. He took that giant step down into this world. And then as if that wasn't enough to just become a member of the human race, he became the lowest of the low, a child of a peasant family. 
And Paul goes on to say, having been found as a man, he humbled himself even more. Stepping down and then down and then down and then down, he humbled himself ultimately to death, even the death of a criminal on the cross. Why did he do that? He did that because of his love for us. He did that because we love, he loved us more than we love ourselves. He loved those around us more than we love them. I'll tell you the, the greatest, the deepest, the most powerful, the most potent love that you have ever felt cannot even hold a candle to the love of Christ. And he did it all for us. And so we say, why doesn't he come back? The world's a mess. If you're having a difficulty in life, you say, why doesn't he come back? I want him to get me out of my problems, maybe out of the circumstances of decisions that I've made and the consequences of decisions I've made. He's going to come at the right time. When he comes, it'll be the perfect moment. And when that time comes, our problems and our trials are going to be over, but you know what? Those of the world are going to intensify in a horrible and a terrifying way in that time of great and awful and terrible tribulation, which Jesus said will be so awful, no time in human history ever could compare. No time will ever be like it. You can't look at the Holocaust. You can't look at World War II. You can't look at the time of the plague. If you accumulated all of the miseries that the world has ever experienced, they're all going to slam into this earth in that time of tribulation. He would deliver us from that if we allowed it. So coming back to the book of Jude, yes, there are going to be mockers walking after their own ungodly lust. And he says, these are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. By the way, you'll notice there's a triplet here in this verse, right? Three things. What do we know about these people? Number one, they're sensual. Number two, they cause divisions. And number three, they have not the spirit. What does this mean? Well, the word sensual is actually the word Paul uses for natural. It's sukikos. It means the soulish man. It speaks of the unbeliever. The unbeliever comes into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. The unbeliever has a body with which we relate to the outward world. We have a soul with which we function socially with other people, but they're lacking the most critical thing, and that is the spirit that gives us the ability to communicate on a plane with God. Not until a person receives Christ as Savior is that spirit created within them. They become a new creation in Christ. And so Paul is saying here, these are natural people, unsaved people. They cause divisions within the church. You know, for some people, there's nothing more fun than causing problems for Christians. As a matter of fact, sometimes it gets deadly. If you hear what's going on in Pakistan and in India today, and I hope you pray for your brothers and sisters, a brother named Victor was first accused, all you have to do in some places in the world is accuse a Christian of blasphemy and anything can be done to them without any repercussions, whatever. So first he's accused of blasphemy, then he is shot several times, nearly killed, then he's arrested for committing blasphemy and being shot. Believe it or not, you can actually get arrested for someone else shooting you. He's put in prison and then he's tortured. We've been pouring out our hearts in prayer for this poor pastor, Victor, who, by the grace of God, is now out of prison and now is 
recovering in his home. Pray for Pastor Fassel, who is in Pakistan right now. He's dealing with all of these situations. Right now, as I look out the window, I see the sun shining. I see a beautiful fall day. I see the fall colors. I look out on your faces. I see that most of you are well-fed. I don't really see anyone here that looks like they're starving. But I'll tell you that the burden remains on my soul as I think of those in other countries who have none of the advantages, none of the benefits, and none of the blessings that you and I have. Let's not forget them. Let's remember to pray for them. You, you may say, I don't know their names. You don't need to know their names. God knows their names. Persecution is going on around the world. I saw a video last night that broke my heart. A multitude, dozens if not hundreds, I don't know how many of Israelis have been taken captive. I saw a little boy. This little blonde-headed boy, about maybe nine or ten years old, being paraded through the street. Who knows where his parents were. If they were abducted with him, they have been taken away. They may never see each other again. This little boy was being slapped, and he was being spit on, and he was being kicked as they paraded him through the street. And that little boy, you could look and see the fear and the terror in his eyes, but there was something in him. He stood there resolutely, and as they would slap him, he would try to knock their hand off, and he was fighting back in the only way that he could. You know, one of the wonderful things about the tragedies of life, when you see stories of the young who die, the young who are slaughtered, even the young who are trafficked and often die in sex trafficking, there's something wonderful about it. Do you know what it is? Christ died for every member of the human race. And those who die as a youth, their sins are covered. They are automatically entering into the presence of the Lord. When David and Bathsheba, through adultery, had that little boy, and that little boy struggled to survive, and he finally died in spite of all of David's prayers. Do you remember what David said? I cannot bring him back to me, but I will go to him. What a wonderful comfort. As we look at the atrocity of abortion across this nation and the millions and millions of lives that have been terminated, we cannot bring them back, but I will tell you one thing. You and I will go to them. And why is that? The matchless grace of God. The matchless grace of God. Do you know what it takes not to go to heaven? We often talk about what do you have to do to go Think about what it takes not to go to heaven. You have to refuse. As that child grows and as the light of God's grace begins to penetrate that soul and as the truth of creation begins to speak to that soul, as we look on the heavens declaring the glory of God and the firmament showing His handiwork and day unto day uttering speech and night unto night uttering knowledge, and then we turn from Romans chapter 1 where he talks about the glory of creation to Romans chapter 2 and he talks about the conscience and he tells us that within every member of the human race the law of God is written in the conscience of their heart and we know without anyone having to tell us that there are things that are wrong. I can go all over the world to any culture you want to find and there are things that you can ask, is this right? No, this is wrong. 
They have that law, that conscience. And what is it doing? It's working in concert with the creation around us, which speaks to every soul that has ever been born and ever stood on this earth. And their individual conscience with the witness of creation begins to bring conviction. Listen, I went to school, to Bible school, with a little Chinese girl who grew up in a home where they had a God closet. I may have told this story to you once before, but if you listen to me very long, you're going to hear my story several times, so you just have to get used to it. They had a time during the day where the parents would open the, the God closet and they had these little images sitting on a shelf and they would have her bow down and she was to worship these little images. She grew to a point where she said within her own soul, this little Chinese girl, I know the maker of these images down the street where my parents bought them. I don't want to know who made these and I don't want to worship these. I want to worship the God that made me. That was her prayer one day. I want to know the God who made me. A week later, a missionary to China who spoke the language was looking for a group of Christians and got lost. And he thought, well, I'll just go ask comes up to the door and knocks. Her mother answers the door. He says, I'm looking for a group of Christians. She said, what are they? He said, well, they're people who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. She said, would you come in and explain that to us? He comes into the house. Here's the mother and the little girl. He gives them the gospel. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is, was at a time when it was very, very difficult to get out of China. I'm talking back in the 70s. And I go to Bible college in Arizona, and here is this young lady who managed to come out of China because God spoke to her heart. There is no one in this world who doesn't have a witness of the truth of God and of His Word. These people are natural people without the Spirit. I've got to move on. Verse 20, build yourselves up. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. How do we build ourselves up? <clears throat> Excuse me. The word to build is ikodomeo, or oikodomeo, if you take the Bible school pronunciation. Ikodomeo is a word that means to build a house. And the idea is that you're building the house on a foundation. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, other foundation can no man lay than that which God has laid, which is Christ Jesus. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation is there. Could I ask you a question? How long have you been a believer? How long have you been a child of God? And let me follow that up with another question. What kind of a house have you built? You might remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talked about two builders. One builder built his house on sinking sand. When the storm and the winds came, the house was destroyed. There's a whole world of people out there who are building their house on sinking sand. But he talked about a wise man. The wise man built on solid rock. And he knew as he was speaking those words to his disciples that they would come to understand that he was that solid rock. On this rock, I will build my church. That's why we're here this morning. But what kind of a house have you built? You know what? I would rather have the right foundation and a shanty than the wrong foundation and a mansion. 
You may feel sometimes like you've done so little, but I want to tell you the very fact that you're here this morning, the very fact that you make yourself available to hear the Word of God tells me that you're building something. Build with faith. Build with hope. Build with love. Build on the Word of God. Build on the promises of Scripture. Build on service and ministry to those around you. Every word that you can speak, every helping hand that you can give, every arm that you can lift up, a struggling fellow believer, you are laying down something that's going to last for eternity. God sees and God honors those things as we build on our faith. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. How can I pray in the Holy Spirit? I'm going to let you in on one of the greatest secrets in the Bible, and I've got to hurry because time's running out. Here's one of the greatest secrets in the Bible. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Could I ask you a question? Are you filled with the Spirit this morning? Are you able to answer that question? A lot of people talk about being filled with the Spirit, but then if you ask them, how can you be filled with the Spirit, they can't tell you. I want to give you a simple illustration. As I go into the villages in Nagaland, in India, in Africa, in South America, I always take a cup. There's a, I've got an old battered tin cup. It's burnt from being over many campfires. It's all blackened on the outside, but it's a camp cup that I carry with me. And I take that cup, <clears throat> and I hold it up, and I say, what is this? And they say, it's a cup. And I said, boy, you guys are really smart. And then I bend down, <clears throat> and I scoop up a little dirt in that cup. <clears throat> I say, is this how you use your cups? Oh, no, we don't. Do that with our cups. <clears throat> Excuse me. Demons are trying to get my throat. Then I pour a little water in it and I say, who would like to drink this? You know, most of them live with polluted water, but they're not going to water, drink water that you purposely put dirt into. So I say, oh, nobody will drink it. So I pour it out and then I fill it up with water and I say, who will drink it now? Well, no, we're still not going to drink it. Why not? Because you didn't clean it out. Oh, I've got to clean it? Oh, okay, so then I rinse it out, swish the water around, pour it out, put fresh water in. Who'll drink it now? Everybody raises their hand. Do you know how simple it is? God has made life so simple for us. We complicate it. You know the first step to being filled with the Spirit? Get ready for this one. It's simple, but it's challenging. Get emptied of yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Free yourself, empty yourself of your sin, your condemnation of others, your judgmental attitude, your self-centered ego. You got to get all that dirt out of the cup. But how can I get that dirt out of the cup? It's very simple. John tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And therefore, I encourage you, when you come to a Bible class, take a few moments before it begins. Examine yourself. Think of the things you've thought, the things you've said, the things that you've done over the past day. Ask the Lord to bring anything to your mind that may have been unpleasing to him. And as it comes into your mind, say, Father, I acknowledge that I did that. All he's asking is honesty. Just be honest with God. What is confession? Confession is admitting the truth. 
I thought that thought, said that word, did that deed. Father, forgive me, cleanse me of those things. And you know what? In that instance, John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the great thing is, even though you only confess one or two, he knows all of them. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21? In a great house, there are many vessels. Some vessels are for honor, some for dishonor. Sitting here before me, I see many vessels, and there are some for honor, and there are some for dishonor. What do you do if you're a vessel for dishonor? Paul says, if any man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, fit and suitable for the master's work. I encourage you to wash your souls this morning. And then as you wash your souls and you're clean, now begin to fill that cup as the Word of God is spoken to you. Or as you sit in your home and you read the Word of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God begins to fill your life. And He begins to guide you and direct you. And then you bow down and you begin to pray and you're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. Build yourself up in your faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. How can I do that? By the way, the word keep here is tereo. It's a word that means to guard something precious. We saw it at the very beginning of the book. I think it's actually used four times in the book. How do I keep myself in the love of God? How do I guard my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Hold your place here. Turn with me to John chapter 15. The answer is so simple. And I always love it when the scripture just explains the scripture. Keep yourself in the love of God. John chapter 15. This is in the upper room. Jesus is with the disciples. He's giving them some of the greatest wisdom that has ever been poured out to men. I encourage you to read John 13 through 17 as Jesus spoke in the upper room. And of course, he starts out in chapter 15 by saying, abide in me and I'll abide in you. Do you want that? Abide in me as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And then John 15 and verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keep yourself in the love of God. How can I keep myself in the love of God? It's very simple. Keep his commandments. You say, uh-oh, how am I going to do that? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I've kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. Well, you'll notice that this command follows the previous, which is pray in the Holy Spirit. When we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and we ask God for His guidance, for His wisdom, for His strength, for His direction, you know what? We can accomplish things we never dreamed we can accomplish. We can overcome things that we never thought we could overcome. We can face that hurt, that heartache without anger and bitterness. There are a lot of bitter Christians in the world today. You know what bitterness is a sign of? It's a sign of a failure to keep yourself in the love of God and to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we are commanded to learn to forgive. And it's hard to forgive sometimes. And sometimes you forgive, you bow down, you pray, and you say, Father, I forgive. And then five minutes later, that memory of that hurt, and it may be years old, 
comes back to you and that bitterness begins to well up in you again and you say, what can I do? It just keeps coming back. Did you ever stop and think that that may be why Jesus told Peter, forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven, 490 times. I don't know if you've forgiven anybody that many times, but it's not because you have 490 different cases. He may have been telling Peter that same thing is going to come back. It's going to come back tonight. It's going to haunt you in the middle of the night. It's going to come and it's going to rip your heart apart in the morning and you're going to have to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive until finally an amazing thing happens. That memory, that pain, that bitterness is all healed and it all goes away. Notice that he says that we keep ourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He's coming again. And what is that mercy for us? We're already the recipients of mercy. He mentioned that for us in verse 1 and 2. There's a mercy we haven't received yet, and that is our glorification. When he comes, as Paul says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be. And how does John describe it in the book of Revelation? No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. The former things are passed away. Would you like to live even one day without a painful memory, one day without a tear, one day without an aggravation, an irritation of some kind. I can't even imagine what it'll be like. Forget what the streets of gold are going to look like. Forget what my mansion is going to look like. Give me a day without any of those things. I'll be in heaven, and you will too. I look for that mercy to come. And finally, he says, don't just think about yourself. Don't just build yourself up on the word of God that you remember. Don't just pray in the Holy Spirit. Don't just look for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the people around you. Each and every one of us have people around us who are children of God. They are glorious beings. They are believer priests. They are members of the royal family of God. And we look on them, and tragically, though we're Christians, we continue to do what we ought not to do, and that is as man looks on the outward appearance while we should be looking as God looks at the heart. The soul of any believer you look on is a glorious thing in the sight of God. But there are those around us who are believers and they're doubting and they're fearful and they struggle and they hurt. And he tells us that we have a ministry of them. If I want to contend for the faith, how about if I start with my wife? How about if I start with my children? Have compassion on those who are doubting. Have compassion and make a difference in their life. This is a command. Be merciful. What does James tell us? Be merciful to those around you. Be merciful to those who have hurt you. Why? Because you will have judgment without mercy if you show no mercy. You want to demand the most of everyone around you? Guess what? God's going to say, oh, you want to live by that standard? I'm going to start demanding the most from you. You want to hold them accountable for everything? 
I can't tell you the number of times in my over 50 years of ministry that I have watched believers who have secret sins in their life that love to stand in judgment of everyone else and then God holds them accountable and all of a sudden their sin blows up out in the open and out in public and now they find out it's not so fun being under condemnation and judgment. As I said to the group yesterday, if there are secret sins in your life, my friend, you better deal with them because... History is catching up to us, and it is a time, as Peter tells us, that judgment is going to begin. God is going to judge this nation, but I'll tell you what he's going to do before he does it. He's going to judge the house of God. Judgment begins at the house of God. Why? Because we have greater accountability because we know so much more. Don't live your life with secret sins. Confront them, confess them, and leave them and live in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have compassion. And verse 23, save those who need to be saved. Those around you who are lost, without hope, without eternal life, without the love of God through Christ, do everything that you can to share the gospel truth. You may not know what to say. Share a scripture. Share a message. Share a recording. Do what you can. And there's one thing that you can always do. Some are very timid. They're not really able to go and confront people. Don't worry about it. You pray for them. If you pray for them enough, you might find an amazing thing. God will open a door for you at the right time when it just comes so natural. I remember as a young new believer, and I found it so hard to talk to people about Christ, and yet I would pray, and I would pray for people and pray that someone would talk to them, that someone would share the gospel with them, and then amazingly, God would bring me into a circumstance where here I am with that person and they'd say, hey, I heard somebody talk about Jesus Christ. Do you know anything about that? It was like just the most natural thing. Oh, I'm glad you asked. God has a way of opening the door so that within our limitations and our capabilities, we can share the love of Christ with those who are around us. Pull them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. What does that mean? Well, it actually comes from a passage in Zechariah. You have it there in your notes. I'm not going to deal with it, Zechariah chapter 3. But what it means is this. Each and every one of us wears a robe. Did you know that you wear a robe? Your robe is either spotless or it's filthy. Our thoughts, our words, our actions are what we're dressed in. And many people live their lives picking up stains every day. You go into the third world, you see people who wear some pretty grody clothing. Filthy from the street. Filthy from the animals. Filthy from the stains of life. You haven't lived until you've seen a Christian in India who, because they are the lowest of the low caste, cannot get a job to feed their family. Women who will go and work, and their daily job is to climb down in the sewer up to their chest and scoop out the sewage to unplug the sewers. You know what? They want nothing more than to get clean. We walk through the sewer of life, and the stains of life accumulate, but don't love it, hate it, 
Hate the garment defiled by the flesh, whether it's yours or someone else's. Come to God in humility. Bow down before the throne of His grace. Acknowledge the sins that are in your life. Pray for the sins in the lives of others. Don't just try to make yourself clean. We are never clean until we have brought that cleansing to someone in our periphery. Maybe our wife, maybe our husband, maybe our children. I mentioned earlier that Nan and I have been married now next year, 50 years. I want to tell you something. She is one of the greatest champions that I have ever known. I've known warriors from the battlefield. I've known so many great men who have fought on the battlefield. She's the greatest warrior I've ever met. She has faced more hardship, difficulty, heartache than most people will ever know. And yet, every morning, she has that same brilliant flashing smile on her face and the same kind words and the same courage to face another day. You know, I thank God He gave me the perfect woman for me. I hope that you men out there have the perfect one for you. And I hope that you ladies will strive to be everything that you can for your husband, but I hope that you husbands will be the shepherd of her soul that you ought to be. Always remember this. Men respond to what they see. Women respond to what they hear. An unkind word can cut them to the heart. Speak gently. Speak softly. Lead faithfully. And let us all draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you love us so much that you give us your word, that you recorded it so that we can hold it in our hand. Help us to be reminded of your word. Help us to take it into our heart and soul, to absorb it until it becomes a part of us. Help us to humble ourselves so that our prayers are uttered in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Help us to keep ourselves in your love. What a safe, what a comforting, what a secure place to be, resting in the arms of the love of God. Father, I pray that we'll never think only of our own comfort and security in the spiritual life, but that we'll have compassion on those of our fellow believers who are struggling, brothers and sisters in Christ, people we're going to spend eternity with. And let us never look on the lost. I've said it many times, no one can look long on the face of Christ and then turn away their eyes from the lost. Help us to look on the lost with that compassion of Jesus Christ that goes out to seek and to save and to share with them the greatest invitation in the world to become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, bless each one who's here this morning. As we go from this place, may you attend us in our way. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you all so much.